Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 34 in our series for 2018, and today's date is Friday, October the 5th. First, I talk to Alex Wilcock who co-founded the company Maker & Son. It's a maker of sofas, chairs and furniture. Based in the UK, it has no physical stores, and most of Maker & Son's customers have purchased their chairs without having sat in them first. Maker & Son has just opened up shares to their business through a wholesale raise on Equitize. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And then I talked to RMIT economist Jonathan Boimel, looking at the pressures on the Australian housing market. But first, let's talk to Alex Wilcock. Yeah. Alex Wilcock, tell us about Maker & Son. You guys make armchairs, sofas, footstools. You're based in the UK. You're reaching out to Australian investors. And yet, your market is quite mature. What makes Maker & Son so distinctive? Well, hi, Leon. Um, really great to, to have this opportunity to speak with you. I mean, the first thing I would say is that we're an all-natural product. So we're doing upholstered furniture and making it entirely from natural materials. That is not something that you currently find within the market. So w- whatever end of the market that you're in, whether it's an, an expensive Italian import or whether it's a, a piece of furniture from Ikea, you'll find that almost exclusively that product is made from polyether foam. So essentially, 
um, you're sitting on a piece of squidgy plastic. So that's one component. We're all natural. The next thing is that we um, fall into this emerging category of a digitally native vertical brand. So you can only buy Maker and Son product through Maker and Son. We do not, um, we're not represented in any stores uh, anywhere. And what we have found is that by creating content, video content and static imagery content that emotionally connects with customers to the core of what the product is about, which ultimately is, you know, if you're going to sit down in a piece of upholstered furniture, you want to be comfortable. So we have developed content that emotionally connects around that simple concept of being really comfortable. And we have proven that you can sell, uh, in the case in Australia, an armchair at $4,500 and a sofa at nearly $7,000. We've proven that you can sell items of furniture like that without people actually sitting in them. So we've got a very, very interesting, highly scalable model that, that we're developing here, where we're essentially removing all need for um, the expense of having retail locations. Now, whether those are downtown or out of town, um, the reality of it is, is that the existing furniture retailers um, rely very heavily on their retail stores in order to make sales. And we have, we've proven in a very short space of time that that actually isn't necessary. Um, so just to give you some stats, over 75% of our sales so far have been made to people that have never sat in the furniture. That's extraordinary. Now, what, do you, what channels do you use? Instagram, Facebook? Yes, at the moment, um, I am very happy to say that we have had absolutely huge success through Instagram and Facebook. So I'll give you some stats. Um, last month, over $3 million worth of inquiries came into the business. Uh, and two-thirds of those came via uh, Facebook and Instagram lead generation ads. Um, and a third of it came from people coming to the website and uh, making an inquiry. In both those formats, to make an inquiry, someone has to give their name, their full postal address, um, their email, their phone number. They have to select the items of furniture that they're wanting. And when they do that, they see what the price is. Uh, they also have to tell us what fabric that they want. And they tell us when they're looking to receive the furniture. Um, so that, that, that's um, it, when we get a lead through, it's a very qualified lead. Um, and then what happens is we've developed a comprehensive back end that merges those sources of data. Um, and then we have people um, uh, within the teams. Um, at the moment, we're manufacturing in both the UK and Australia. We're, we've signed a deal in the, the US and soon to start manufacturing there. Um, so we're globally marketing and we're locally producing. And then the sales follow-up is done locally. So from that back end that I was describing, uh, we, we have a system uh, where we've integrated with Google Maps um, and it enables each of our team, uh, as the moment that lead comes in, to be able to click on the address, um, take a look at 
the, the type of place that the customer is, is, is living in, it gives some idea then as to the type of response. So we produce an incredibly personalized response uh, to each and every customer that comes through. Um, we've just started um, using Google um, as well. And uh, that is, is, um, that's a trial that's running in the UK and is proving to be very successful as well. So, yeah, we're, we're a very, very, very heavily digitally orientated company that is selling a, you know, a real life product. Well, so basically uh, you're not operating out of stores at all. It's quite a deliberate strategy to go totally digital. Yes, it absolutely is. So in terms of my background, um, I, I trained as a furniture designer and a cabinet maker, very rapidly got into the world of retail. And when I was 25, which I now look back on and think, well, how did I ever do that? But at 25, I became the general manager of Country Road Homeware, uh, which had been going for about six months at the time and was um, purely a, a textile business then. Uh, and I was given the opportunity to build that brand, um, which you may or may not remember. But, you know, in the 90s, it was, you know, a hugely successful business. Um, and I opened 27 stores there, then went back to the UK and ran the Conran Group worldwide with their shops. What I learned from that experience, which was, you know, a, an amazing experience being involved in high end retail within homeware, was that um, the the margin, so much of your margin goes on things that, you know, a, a fixed cost that you can't do anything about. So you've got your rent and you've got your rates and you've got, you know, all of those things. And then, of course, to a certain extent, you've got a, a, an element of fixed costs with your staffing. And it just seemed to me that in today's world, that's a very, very cumbersome model. Then if you add to that, that, that at this end of the market, um, you know, to be clear, you know, we're at the higher end. I wouldn't say that we're right at the very highest end necessarily, but, you know, we're at the mid to high end. The majority of people that are going to be spending, let's say, you know, in, in a living room somewhere between ten dollars and $15,000, majority of those people have got other things to do with their lives. They don't want to be going out to an out-of-town location and having all of that hassle. What they want is the ability to you know, make these decisions online, a lot of the time actually on their mobile, and um, to feel confident that what they're getting is, uh, is something that goes beyond just uh, a product. So, yeah, a very, very deliberate move to basically cut out all of that expense and um, actually to create a globally scalable model. You know, we're, we're absolutely determined for us, uh, for Maker & Son to become the brand that is associated with luxury, natural furniture across the world. Um, so, sorry, carry on. So, so basically, uh, I mean, I believe your company is valued at about $10 million and you're, uh, you're now reaching out to Australian investors through the online equity platform Equitize, and you're seeking about $1.5 million worth of investment from Australians. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the valuation actually is at seven million dollars, and yes, we're we're uh, our minimum, which is at uh, two hundred fifty thousand dollars, is is almost there. We're we're about eight percent off from reaching that minimum, uh, and 
uh, we're going to be building uh, on that. And in terms of in terms of the next steps for us, as I've already touched on, probably one of the most exciting things for us over the next couple of months is is the move into the US. Um, I, I think it's probably useful for people to understand that um, in terms of our, our development strategy, as I've mentioned, we're locally producing. And we've chosen to work with manufacturers that have got um, a really great track, track record within the market. So in both Australia and the UK, um, those manufacturers have been operating for 30 years plus, And the same is true within the U.S. So we found a manufacturer in the U.S. that manufactures both on the West Coast and on the East Coast. And probably one of the most relevant things for this conversation is just to say that when we first switched on the site, which was in January of this year, we were so um, deluged by inquiries from the U.S. that we actually had to block access. Um, We switched off... um, uh, all of our uh, Instagram activity within that market because we couldn't cope with the inquiries that were coming in. And we just simply weren't able to, uh, to, to meet those needs to you know, customers in the US from what at that stage was one manufacturing facility in the UK. So when you consider that you know, the UK um, you know, against the US it's about five times the population in the U.S. from the U.K. Um, and we're at three million dollars worth of inquiries coming in at the moment. Um, we would expect our growth to be very, very rapid. So that um, in terms of our overall numbers, we expect to be doing um, about seven million dollars worth of sales in 2019. Well, that is just extraordinary, Alex. And uh, what, what an extraordinary company. And uh, look, we're going to watch that with great interest. And uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much indeed. And now let's talk to economist Jonathan Boimel. Jonathan Boimel, there's been a lot of alarmist stories about the property market busting. There's been stories about the market losing as much as 40%. How much credibility do these stories have? Yeah, look, we've seen some spectacular headlines recently. Um, There was a 60 Minutes report a couple of weeks ago with claims that prices were were falling off a a cliff. And we know that over the years there's been talk that the Australian housing market market is a a giant speculative um, bubble. Look, we've seen Australian house prices falling, for 11 consecutive months. We know that's driven by Melbourne and, and Sydney. Um, in nominal terms, Melbourne's median house price has fallen about 3% over the year. Um, Sydney, it's fallen about 6.1% um, over the same period. Um, so we're not talking yet about 25% falls or 40% falls. We've still got a significant way to go if we would ever um, reach those those levels. Um, it's likely that the declines in Melbourne will catch up to the declines in, in Sydney soon um, for two reasons. Number one, the declines in Melbourne started later um, than, in, than in Sydney. Um, and number two, we're actually seeing a, a slight acceleration in the declines in Melbourne um, compared to Sydney. So I do expect that, that the Melbourne declines will catch up with the, with the uh, larger Sydney declines um, in the near in the near future. Um, 
CoreLogic is going to be releasing its September data um, early next month. So it's likely that the 11 consecutive months of declines will um, extend into 12 consecutive months of, of declines. Um, housing prices tend to follow what's happening to housing finance. And there's been a downward trend in the number of home loans in Australia uh, since July 2017. Uh, if home loans continue to drop, house prices will continue to drop um, beyond what we already expect. Okay, so if you take a look at um, the number of the number of uh, home loan approvals um, as they stand now, that's an indicator that that house prices will will. Con- continue to drop for at least three to, to six months. Um, if we see continued declines um, in home loan approvals, um, then we would expect to see continued um, declines in house prices beyond that, that three to six month level. Um, auction prices also. In Melbourne, clearance rates are about 15% lower than at the same time last year. Um, and it, that indicates that Sellers are yet to adjust their reservation prices, right? They're waiting for prices to rise. Okay, buyers, on the other hand, have a different perspective. Okay, so it's going to take some time. It's going to take some time until the, the um, expectations of buyers and the expectations of sellers coincide. So you would expect that prices and sales volumes will slowly drift lower. Okay, until you know their, their expectations about you know what what is a fair price um, coincide. So although the, you know the downturn may be relatively mild, um, certainly not the the forty percent that's being discussed, unless a number of things happen, and I can talk about that in a moment. Um, but I expect a, a mild downturn. But but given the the low. Um, the relatively low auction clearance rates. I'd expect that that we might be seeing this for for an extended extended period of time. But the reality too is that the economy would have to you'd have to have certain things going exactly. wrong with the economy and certain things going wrong internationally. Exactly for for house prices to be affected by such a major. Effect. Oh, exactly. If you were going to see a crash you'd have to see Australians forced out of their homes en masse. And for that to happen, you'd either have to see um, a dramatic increase in the unemployment rate uh, or an increase in interest rates um, or both. Um, now, the market doesn't predict any official any increase in official cash rates for the next two years. Um, unemployment well, is relatively low and, and stable, um, so, you know, this gives some positive outlook um, for the housing market. Um, but again, you know, you've got APRA that introduced lending restrictions, limits on, on loans to, um, or limits on high loan to income borrowers. Um, that is, is certainly putting the brakes on the, on the housing market. Um, if they put additional limits um, on lending to high debt to income borrowers, well, that would further slow um, the housing market. Um, that would make it harder for borrowers to purchase an investment if they already have a, have a mortgage. Um, and there has been some talk about APRA um, putting additional limits on lending to high debt to income borrowers. 
um, but we'll have to see if that if that happens. But again, all of these things can be reversed. You know, the, the Reserve Bank of Australia, um, unlike some other central banks around the world, um, has the ability um, to reduce the official cash rate and offset any increase in rates, mortgage rates that have been set by um, set by the banks. Um, APRA can potentially reverse some of its lending restrictions. Um, state and federal governments can support the housing markets in certain, you know, in, in certain ways. Um, so, in part, it will. De- what happens to housing prices will depend on the policy response. Um, but again, in, in the absence of any significant change in, in policy direction, I would expect to see a continual, gradual decline in in house prices, but certainly not the 25%, not the 40%, um, unless we see something dramatic happening to the economy. Now, uh, the RBA is not expected to put up interest rates until about 2020. That's right. right. However, banks are increasing their rates out of cycle. Sure. So what impact is that having? Look, I think it does have an impact on consumer sentiment. Um, how much of an impact, I'm not sure. Um, but the fact is that the Reserve Bank of Australia can easily offset that. Okay? So they can choose, if they want, um, to reduce official rates, right, to offset that increase. Um, so I'm not, I'm, not particularly, I'm not particularly concerned. Um, but, yeah, it, it does have an impact on consumer sentiment, um, if you take a look at uh, affordability and you're taking a look at you know a range of ratios, including um, mortgage repayments to um, median male incomes, for example, um, those ratios aren't as high as they were back in, in 2010. Um, but if we do see continue increases in in Interest rates, out-of-cycle interest rates, that can have a real impact on on affordability. Um, we know that there are concerns about when people move from um, fixed interest rates mortgages to, to variable interest rate mortgages, that can have a have a real hit um, on people's ability to pay. But again, the the important thing to recognise is that the Reserve Bank of Australia can compensate for that. Um, they can they can reduce official interest rates to offset those 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 out of cycle out of cycle in, in, uh, interest rate increases on the part of the banks. And the reality is, a lot of the uh, downward pressures coming from Melbourne and Sydney. Admittedly, these are the two big markets, but sure. uh, other markets aren't in the same position. Prices are actually increasing in those markets. That's right. We're seeing some stability. I mean, Perth has gone through this boom and bust mm. um, cycle with regards to its housing um, housing market. Um, but in some of the, some of the smaller cities, um, we are seeing um, a period of consolidation and, and in some cases, some, some recovery. Um, but yes, it's very much driven by, by Melbourne and Sydney. So would you expect those other markets to offset and balance what's happening in Melbourne and Sydney? That's an interesting. Yeah, look, that that's an interesting question. It's unlikely 
for two reasons. Number one is, as you said, in terms of the size of the markets, right, Melbourne and Sydney far outweigh um, those other cities. Uh, but we also know that, you know, number two, there doesn't tend to be tremendous geographical mobility in Australia. Okay, so there was a little bit in Perth. Mm. Okay, um, and again, that's the reason for some of that the, the boom and boom and bust features of the the housing cycle that that we've seen there. Um, but that's 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 relatively rare. Um, there's not there's not a significant um, level of, of mobility of mobility in Australia. Um, I'd expect um, that homeowners are going to be holding on. Um, in the expectation that prices will recover. Um, and as a result, yeah, I, I don't think we're going to be sort of seeing any sort of substitution-type substitution, substitution behaviour uh, in Australia. And the reality is that if you bought your home 10, 20 years ago, you'd still be doing quite well in terms of asset appreciation despite the fall in prices. Is that correct? That's, that's absolutely correct. Um, so it is very much a concern for perhaps young families who have bought in the last couple of years. Um, that's where the concerns lie. Um, and we know, and we've spoken about this before, um, that there can be a real impact on household wealth with implications for consumption. Um, and that can hit economic growth hard. Um, so it's likely that the earlier RBA forecasts of 3% growth is probably overstated um, given the continual declines in house prices in, in, in Melbourne and Sydney. Given that this is very cyclical, when do you expect prices will start rising again? Is there a, <laughs> is there a time frame for that? Um, In part, it depends on the psychology of deflation, right? So if households, if homeowners believe that there is going to be a turnaround, um, but potential buyers um, believe that prices still have a long um, way to fall, um, then we will see lower auction clearance rates. We will see continual gradual declines in house prices, um, perhaps driven more by forced sales um, than than anything else. Um, But, yeah, given um, the data on housing finance, given the data on auction clearance levels, um, I would expect that we would expect to see continued declines for at least six months. Um, and then your guess is is as good as mine. And again, it depends, as you said, what's going to happen to unemployment, the international international context and and so on. But we're looking we're looking at at the least at a period of decline over over six months, gradual decline. Um, and then potentially extending um, into the later part of, of 2019. Uh, but the key word there is gradual. Nothing, nothing 
very sudden or anything like that. That that that's my perspective. Jonathan Boyle, thank you very much for your time. Thank, thank you, you. Leon. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, signs of China's economic slowdown and the fallout from the trade war with the US are now showing up in two gauges. The official Manufacturing Purchasing Managers Index stood at 50.8 in September versus 51.3 in August. This was lower than the median estimate of 51.2 in a Bloomberg survey of economists. Meanwhile, the Caixin Manufacturing PMI which better reflects sentiment among smaller private firms, declined to 50 from 50.6. Now that was the lowest in over 12 months since May 2017. And a reading of 50 is the dividing line between expansion and contraction. So this figure is line ball. The lack of progress in negotiations between Washington and Beijing over their trade rivalry means that there's a good chance the current roster of tariffs on $250 billion of Chinese goods exported to the US will grow, as President Trump has threatened. That leaves little room for optimism on external demand, and that means the outlook for China's economy hinges increasingly on the effectiveness of targeted stimulus measures being rolled out this year. The gauge for new export orders in the manufacturing PMI report fell to 48 the fourth consecutive month of contraction, the lowest reading since 2016. And President Donald Trump looks to be preparing for a potentially protracted economic war with China by clearing the decks of disputes with America's other trading competitors. In just the last few weeks, he's struck a last-minute deal with Canada and Mexico, signed a trade agreement with South Korea, and convinced Japan to begin bilateral economic negotiations. The North American Accord also includes provisions seemingly aimed at keeping Chinese products out of the regions. It's the new NAFTA, officially called United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement, or USMCA. Unfortunately, UMSAMCA doesn't exactly roll off a tongue. Now, the North American Free Trade Agreement, Trump often said, was the worst deal in history. But with just a couple of changes, it's now going to be trumpeted as the greatest thing. So what changes? Not all that much. Here are some highlights. Autos. In order to qualify for zero tariffs, autos will have to have more of the manufacturing done by high-paid workers. Dairy. Canada will accept more American milk and dairy products. Copyright. Canada will extend the term of copyright from 50 years after the copyright holder's death to 70 years, as the US demanded. Drug patents. At US urging, Canada will offer enhanced patent protection for drugs, which will make them more expensive to Canadian consumers and increase profits for the drug industry. And dispute resolution. A NAFTA provision allowing investors to challenge the decisions of governments has been eliminated, while another provision providing for disputes among the three countries to be settled by a panel of representatives from all three has been retained. And it has a new name. Now, General Electric abruptly ousted its chief executive, John Flannery, on Monday after a year on the job a stunning move for the struggling company that once symbolised the nation's industrial greatness. The company picked up H. Lawrence Culp, former chief executive Danaher, to take over. It's the first time an outsider has taken the reins of a 126-year-old company, which originally was formed as an electric business by Thomas Edison. Despite those historic roots, the past decade has been unkind to GE. The company was plagued by strategic missteps, including poorly timed investments. 
He expanded into the power and oil industries at market peaks, paying top dollar for what turned out to be mediocre investments. It sold off portions of its financial portfolio, GE Capital, at near market lows. Analysts and investors said Flannery's focus on its turbine power business was ill-timed because of overcapacity and poor demand. In 2007, before the financial crisis, GE was the second most valuable country in the world, joined by the likes of ExxonMobil, Royal Dutch Shell and Toyota. Now, that list is dominated by tech giants such as Google, Facebook and Microsoft. Even as Apple and Amazon both have crossed the threshold of the first trillion dollar US companies, GE's market capitalisation has shrunk to $100 billion. All told, GE has lost about half a trillion dollars in value since its longtime chief executive Jack Welsh retired in 2001. Welsh handed off to Jeffrey R. Immelt, on whose watch GE stumbled as the worst performing stock on the Dow Jones Industrial Average among companies that hadn't gone bankrupt. The change of leadership on Monday belies a growing sense of panic about the company, which has never replaced a CEO so quickly or handed the reins to an outsider. Along with Culp's appointment, GE said it would take a $23 billion non-cash charge for its power business and miss earnings expectations for 2018. And Standard & Poor's cut GE's credit rating to triple B plus from A on the news. And to Australia. And the RBA kept its overnight cash rate unchanged at 1.5% in October, maintaining the status quo that's been in place since August 2016. The result was widely expected by both economists and financial markets. And Melbourne has firmly overtaken Sydney as the nation's weakest housing market, with both of Australia's biggest cities posting substantial monthly property price falls in September. September was the 12th straight month in which a nation's housing prices fell, with Melbourne's 0.9% decline leading the way downwards. Sydney, Perth, Darwin and Adelaide also reported price falls in the month of spring, while Brisbane, Canberra and Hobart reported modest price gains. Core logic data shows that home prices nationally have fallen 2.7% since peaking in September last year. Capital cities responsible for the losses are down 3.7%, while regional areas had a 1.2% gain over the past 12 months. And over the past year, Sydney was the worst performing city with prices off 6.1%, followed by Darwin at 3.7%, Melbourne down 3.4%, and Perth down 2.1%. And Australian Treasurer Josh Frydenberg has confirmed his closely liaising with the Reserve Bank of Australia and Treasury about ensuring the economy avoids a credit squeeze amid market concerns the Royal Commission's damning findings into misconduct in the financial services sector might trigger a credit crunch. Now Treasury and the RBA have privately cautioned the Morrison government that any regulatory response to the Financial Services Royal Commission needs to be careful to avoid putting the brakes on lending to home buyers and business. Now, Mr Freiburg met RBA Governor Philip Lowe on Tuesday after the central bank kept the official cash rate on hold at 1.5%. And he said on Wednesday that the government would take all necessary actions to restore public confidence in the financial sector and to address reprehensible bank behaviour while ensuring credit continued to flow from lenders in order to grow the economy. I talk to Treasury all the time and the Reserve Bank Governor yesterday and other key players in this field about the importance of maintaining access to credit in the market and the importance of maintaining stability across the economy, Mr Frydenberg said on ABC Radio. The Royal Commissioner himself in his interim report points out that he wants to get on and execute his job promptly 
because of the impact that the overall Royal Commission has on the confidence of the system. Labor is repeating calls for an extended inquiry into banking misconduct, despite the Royal Commissioner insisting he doesn't need more time. The opposition will hear from victims through a series of roundtable talks in cities and towns across Australia. Labor Financial Services spokeswoman Claire O'Neill will lead the discussions to hear more stories from victims, even though Commissioner Kenneth Hayne has made it clear he doesn't want more time. The Commission received more than 10,000 public submissions, but just 27 customers have had their voices heard at the inquiry. And Treasurer Josh Frydenberg said the government had consistently offered to extend the inquiry if the Commissioner had asked for an extension. And the Royal Commission continues to take scalps. First, with freedom insurance, suspending selling its, its numbers in a sweeping restructure that will also result in the departure of two of its most senior executives, losing its Chief Executive, Keith Cohen, and Chief Financial Officer, Jenny Andrews. And secondly, ASIC plans to launch the first legal action related to the Hain Royal Commission against AMP within weeks of the fees-for-no-service scandal as the regulator looks to make an example of the financial services giant for taking money it wasn't entitled to and then lying about it. The imminent legal action by the Australian Securities and Investments Commission comes off the back of Commissioner Kenneth Haynes' blistering takedown of the sector, which he said was motivated by greed in an interim report released last week that includes serious admissions of misconduct. And more than $1.5 billion will be invested across Rio Tinto's Robe Valley and West Angeles iron ore projects in the Pilbara. Rio Tinto and Japanese joint venture partners Mitsui and Nippon Seal Sumitomo Metal approved of the $1.55 billion investment. Rio will add $820 million for its 53% share to sustain production capacity at two projects which form part of the Robe River joint venture. The partners will spend $967 million to develop the Mesa B, C and H deposits at Rogue Valley and $579 million to build deposits C and D at the existing West Angeles operation. Rio said the investment would allow the partners to sustain production of the high-grade Pilbara blend and its Rogue Valley lump and fines products. As part of the deal, Rio Tinto will retrofit 34 existing haul, haul trucks at its Robe River joint venture mines with autonomous technology under a major investment in the area's operations. In other words, driverless trucks. And that's it for this week. And next week I have a terrific interview with Dr. Afric Boylan from the Online Doctor Service. It's a fascinating interview. In the meantime, you can keep up with me on Twitter at TalkingBizBLZ or on Facebook. Looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.